So we're moving on to the third in our Servant Song series this morning. And just uh, a quick recap, Jenny, uh, three weeks ago, we had a little bit of a gap in the middle um, due to the Together service last week. Um, Jenny spoke on chapter 42 three weeks ago, which is all about the image of the Servant King bringing ultimate justice to our world. Pete then spoke a week later on the servant who brings justice, uh, sorry, who will bring peace through restoration. And uh, this is a progressive revelation. So today we move on to chapter 50. And this is often referred to as the servant song that is all about the obedient servant. And I'll be honest, when I first read it, I found it totally confusing. I got the middle bit. I was quite pleased with myself on that. You could clearly see the echoes of what would eventually happen to Jesus when he uh, suffers before going on to the cross, before going to the cross. And as a result, I thought, okay, this don't quite get the rest of it, but at least I've got something I can hang this on. As I've gone through it, I've actually understood it far, far more, as you would hope, given I'm stood up here preaching to you this morning. Um, and actually, I've got a huge amount out of it. And actually, it's not by any means. To, to almost imply that this is just about an obedient servant, to my mind, is actually doing it a disservice. This goes way beyond just talking about an obedient servant. And in fact, where I want to start this morning, I mean, I've, I've made the title this morning, Nighttime Navigation. That'll hopefully become clear as we go through it. Um, but really, a lot of this is about being lost, about being in darkness. And it reminded me of a time many years ago, this is probably actually about 20 years ago, maybe more, when I did the Mountain Leader Training for Duke of Edinburgh Award, um, because I wanted to lead it. I didn't go anywhere beyond the training, I'm sorry to say. Um, it, uh, it was going to be far too time-consuming, and we were about to have kids, so that kind of took over. But I can still remember doing nighttime navigation on this training course. What we had to do was, during the day, uh, the guy who was leading our course took us outside and got us to measure out what 50 metres looked like in terms of our steps. And at the time, we thought, what is he doing this for? What's this all about? Why do we need to know what 50 metres looks like in terms of the number of steps it involves? We found out later that night when we got all our tents set up, pitch dark up on a hill, and uh, it was actually more than a hill, it was a bit of a cliff at one side, and he told us that we were going to practice some nighttime navigation without torches. Uh, which was rather interesting when you're on the edge of a cliff. And as a result, obviously, he, I think he had a head torch. He was off to the side just making sure we were okay. But we had to actually walk 50 metres, trusting in our strides to make sure that we didn't go off the edge of that cliff. When we looked the next morning, we realised how close we had actually come. But you had to really trust in yourself that you were going to get that right. And that was really risky. The other example of this was many years ago, Rachel and I used to uh, help out on a camp down in Wales, and once we went on a walk up Snowdon. And I don't know if you know this gentleman, a guy called Johnny Waldridge, um, who uh, is quite involved locally, Caleb knows him, obviously. Um, Johnny was leading us on our walk up Snowdon when the fog descended, and it was complete, I mean, it was literally a metre or two that you could see in front of you. And after a while of walking in this fog, I, I said to Johnny, uh, do you know where we are? And he went, yeah, of course I do. Just follow me. I trusted him. I believed him. And it kind of wrecks my story a little bit that when we got back down the mountain and we sat in a cafe having a, a cup of coffee afterwards, I said to him, did you really know where you were going? And he went, no, I didn't have a clue, but you believed me, and that was the point. Um, and so that sort of wrecks my story, but it, I'll come... Um, and so that sort of wrecks my story, but it, I'll come back to that towards the end. So in this passage, we have a situation where the people of Israel, the people of Judah specifically, are about to go into exile. Isaiah is 
prophesying this. This is going to happen in a, in a, few hundred, a couple of hundred years' time. And he's basically trying to tell them what needs to happen when they are in darkness, when they are surrounded by doubt and insecurity. This is the future they are facing. And actually, into this situation, God is going to speak. So they're foretelling here, Isaiah is foretelling the Babylonian exile. And in fact, my first point is this, a helpless people. So just as the servant songs are a progressive revelation, as we go through this passage, I'm not going to do the whole passage to start with, I'll read it through, we're going to do it a section by a section so that it hopefully will, as it eventually did to me, make more sense. In fact, as regards this Babylonian exile, the closest parallel I could draw with this was we can see the images in Ukraine at the moment, can't we? We can see the refugees making their way out. We can see one of the horrendous things I've seen this morning on the news was these areas that have been liberated from the Russians and just the bodies that have been left behind, the mass graves and so on. And in many ways, the Babylonian captivity, when it started, was like that, when Babylon came in and took over. But it was even worse than that. Because not only were the people attacked and there was a major war going on, they were actually then taken away into slavery in Babylon. And actually, you can imagine the frustration of that, the upset, the lives turned completely on their heads, just as is happening in Ukraine at the moment. And actually, as part of that, they cry out to God. This is what the first part of this passage says. So, this is what the Lord says. So they are saying at this point, in fact, we'll come to this in a minute, what they, they've been saying that leads to this response from God because it leads on from chapter 49. So this is what God says. Where is your mother's certificate of divorce with which I sent her away? Or to which of my creditors did I sell you? Because of your sins you were sold. Because of your transgressions your mother was sent away. When I came, why was there no one? When I called, why was there no one to answer? Was my arm too short to deliver you? Do I lack the strength to rescue you? By a mere rebuke, I dry up the sea. I turn rivers into a desert. Their fish rot for lack of water and die of thirst. I clothe the heavens with darkness and make sackcloth its covering. So this is kind of why I was a bit confused when I started reading this. because I didn't really quite get how that fitted with the image of an obedient servant. And we'll come to that later on, as I've said. So actually, this is a response from God. That's the first real point here, that actually it's a response from God. They're saying, they're saying the Lord has forsaken me. The Lord has forgotten me. That's what the people are saying now that they're in Babylon. That's what Isaiah is prophesying. They will say, where are you, God? You've forgotten about us. And it may be that we can identify with that quite a lot, but actually God says in response, actually, you're saying I've abandoned you. Well, where's... What's the certificate of divorce? Now, this is a reference to Deuteronomy 24. In Deuteronomy 24, it says if a man marries a woman who becomes displeasing to him because he finds something indecent about her, he writes her a certificate of divorce, gives it to her, and sends her away. So that's what this is actually referring to. God's saying, I haven't done that. This is not a divorce. I haven't completely thrown you out and sent you away from your home. And there's an implication in that of what is actually to come as a result. And again, there's this reference to uh, the, uh, the uh, creditors in here as well. Um, which of my creditors did I sell you to? Now, we see again an echo of this in 2 Kings. 2 Kings 4, it, there's a, a quote here when Elisha goes to a woman. And you may remember this. He gets her to fill up these various pots of oil so that actually she has enough to feed her family. But she says to Elisha initially, your servant, my husband, is dead. 
and you know that he revered the Lord. But now his creditor is coming to take my two boys as his slaves. This was something that could happen in those days. That if you were in debt, your creditor could either take you into slavery or take members of your family into slavery. So God, in many ways here, is taking the mick. He's saying, which of my creditors did I sell you to? So as if God could actually owe money or owe a debt to anybody. Saying, that's just not true. So he's, he's saying in both of these examples that actually, although they have been sent into exile, in actual fact, they still belonged to him. There was no certificate of divorce. There was no sense that they were going to be taken into slavery because God owed somebody something in some way. And in fact, what he actually goes on to talk about, well, actually, sorry, before this he's talked about in Isaiah 1, he's actually talked really about why it is that they have been sent into exile. And it's not that he's disowned them. It's because of what they've done. And in Isaiah 1, the very first, uh, well, second verse there, hear me, you heavens, listen, earth, for the Lord has spoken. I reared children and brought them up, but they've rebelled against me. And actually, what God is really doing here, it goes on to say in verse 4, they've forsaken the Lord. They've spurned the Holy One of Israel and turned their backs on him. And actually, what he's doing here is actually saying, because really of your sins you were sold. It was actually what you did that caused this. And actually, I've had enough. In fact, Isaiah 1 is a really good passage to read to give some context around this, because God pretty much says that throughout throughout Isaiah 1. He says, I am going to do something about this. I've had enough enough of you saying the right things and then doing the exact opposite. And actually, the time has come when I actually need to address this properly and fully because of your sins, you need to be sold. So this isn't a divorce. This is more a kind of separation, if you like. They had indicated through their behaviors and their attitudes that actually they wanted to be anywhere but with God. So God gave them what they wanted. You don't want to behave like my chosen people anymore. You don't want to live in the land that I gave you. You don't want to behave in the way that I've told you. Right, fine. I'll take you at your word. And in fact, you may remember Caleb speaking a few weeks ago. I think it was on the topic of eternal judgment. And actually, there's some shades of that, aren't there, where Caleb, I think, ended... This is not an eternal judgment thing, actually. It's, it's in many ways quite different, because actually God's not eternally judging them. He's giving them yet another chance. And in fact, it reminded me when I was preparing this that actually this is very similar to God disciplining his people. And you can see there in Isaiah 1 again, this is why I found Isaiah 1 really quite interesting in terms of context. He actually says, I will purge away your dross and remove your impurities. Very similar passage in some ways to Hebrews 12 that talks about God disciplining us for our own benefit. Do not lose heart when he rebukes you. The Lord disciplines the one he loves. So in many ways, although they're seeing this as potentially a divorce or God settling them into slavery and all the rest of it, actually God's saying to them, no, this is actually the opposite. This is a sign that I haven't forgotten you. If I had, I wouldn't be doing this to you. I'd just leave you as you were. But in fact, I'm doing this because it's for your own good, because you've got to learn these lessons at some point. It's actually a sign he hasn't given up on them. It's the exact opposite of what they're saying. And then we have this passage where he says, when I came, why was there no one? When I called, why was there no one to answer? And that's symptomatic of this problem that the Israelites have got. That actually they 
are not prepared to stand up. It, it reminded me again, this bit when I read it, was a bit like the Garden of Eden, when God comes into the Garden of, Garden of Eden and the, the people, uh, Adam and Eve, are ashamed, aren't they? They hide from God. And it's kind of like that with what God's saying here. Where were you? I wanted you to answer, and nobody did. Because, they, because of their guilt, they were ashamed. And actually, they knew they were doing wrong. They couldn't dig themselves out of it. They had no way of saving themselves. And actually, God eventually has to come up with a solution. We may be able to identify with this even. Maybe you have experienced running away from God to other things we think are more important. Jenny spoke when she was talking about um, chapter 42. I think it was. Yeah, it was chapter 42. Um, she was talking about our tendency to run towards idols instead of God. And there's a reference back to that again here when God is saying we've stopped listening We've stopped answering. And that's what he's saying to the, uh, to the people of Judah here. And actually, I love this next passage. Was my arm too short? I listened to one commentary on this where it was uh, a gentleman preaching. Um, in fact, I, I, this is one of the positive things actually about my long journey to work is I can listen to uh, sermons quite easily on the journey. And uh, this one gentleman was, was preaching on this topic and was saying um, he's quite a short guy and the clocks had just gone back. And he said, my arm really is literally too short because I can't reach the clock to take it down and turn it. So as a result, I have to get someone else to do it for me. Now, God's saying, was my arm too short? God's arm is never too short. Of course it's not. These are rhetorical questions. Was my arm too short to deliver you? Do I lack the strength? In some ways, it's kind of odd to think of God as a sarcastic God, isn't it? But it, there is a degree of sarcasm here. Really? You honestly thought that? Well, of course you don't. If you genuinely know who I am and believe in the, the, my attributes, my characteristics, you will know that is not me. And then he talks about this, these references here. I think this is part of what threw me when I was first reading this. I was thinking, what's this all about, about fish rotting and all the rest of it? Well, this is actually a reference to the miracles of Exodus. So when it talks about drying up the sea, turning it into a desert, that's a reference to the crossing of the Red Sea with Moses. When he talks about fish rotting, that is actually a reference to the first plague, the plague of blood. And actually the phrase used about fish rotting here is identical to the one in, in, uh, in the original Hebrew um, that uh, was used in, in the Exodus passage itself. So fish rotting is a direct reference to the first plague. Clothing the heavens in darkness is again a reference to the ninth plague. So he's kind of harking back to all these things and saying, Really? My arm's too short. I haven't got the strength. Look, see what I've done. You know how I've helped you in the past. And it reminds me again just of uh, on my desk as I was planning this, I have built myself a little cairn. I'm not sure how legal this is to take beach stones, but uh, I know, Rona, you take beach glass, so I kind of justify it on that basis. Um, beautiful stuff. But I've got a little cairn, partly because the Israelites, when they crossed the Red Sea, they built a cairn, which is called an Ebenezer. And that means, thus far has the Lord brought us. And what God's saying here is, look how far I've brought you. Look what I've done for you. Is that meaning that I've got no strength? Surely it's the opposite. Surely you can see my arm is not too short. I am not too weak. I can rescue you. You can't rescue yourselves. It didn't work in Egypt. It's not going to work now. Turn back to me. And he's sort of implying here that he's able to redeem his people with as great a deliverance as there was shown in the Exodus. He has a plan. 
another thing I was listening to actually was that famous song, Don't Give Up. What was it we were watching the other night? Was it... Um, Songs of the 80s, great songs of 1986, I think. It's one of those things when you're sort of browsing through the television late at night and Don't Give Up came on that great song. And um, actually, that's what God's saying here. Don't give up. And for us, there's a message there as well, isn't there? No matter how flawed we are, no matter how bleak life may look, God is there for us. No matter how many times we get it wrong, he comes for us just as that passage that I had down there a minute ago, when he comes for us, it's then up to us to make a choice about how we answer. So that's a bit of the context that I still think is really relevant to us even now and to this, uh, this preach this morning. Second point is this, a hopeful servant. I could have put an obedient servant, but I actually think this is a hopeful servant maybe because of what is suggested by the wider picture here. And the, the voice changed. Whereas it's been God speaking in those first three verses, being sarcastic and pointing out these things to the, Israel, to, to the people of Judah and to the Israelites generally, this time Jesus speaks himself. Now, we only know it's Jesus. We know it's the servant because later on in verse 10, it, there's a reference to doing what the servant says. So we know that this is meant to be Jesus speaking himself. And in fact, we have straight away the servant breaking this silence. When God comes and says, where are you? Why aren't you answering? The servant steps up. And this is what the servant says. Just bear with me, sorry. The right one. There we go. The sovereign Lord has given me a well-instructed tongue to know the word that sustains the weary. Who feels weary this morning? No response, but we get a few nodding heads. Okay. So weary, we can't even lift our hands up to say it. Um, to know the word that sustains the weary. He wakens me morning by morning. Wakens my ear to listen like one being instructed. The sovereign Lord has opened my ears. I have not been rebellious. I have not turned away. I offered my back to those who beat me. My cheeks to those who pulled out my beard. I did not hide my face from mocking and spitting. That was the bit I got when I first read it. I thought, yeah, yeah, I can see that. I know where that comes from. Um, the rest of it made no sense to me, but that really did. And actually, there are some great things here that we can see in terms of exactly what, uh, we, uh, what the, the servant is like. A well-instructed tongue. This is a servant who learns. He is continually on a journey of learning and actually uses that. We sometimes talk here about being blessed to be a blessing. Well, he knows he is blessed to be a blessing, speaking wisely to help the weary. He comes to comfort us, to be an encourager, and he brings a message of hope. That's why I've chosen to call this a hopeful servant rather than an obedient servant. He does what God tells him to, of course he does. But actually, he's come to give us a message of hope, that there is light at the end of the tunnel, that there is a silver lining to every cloud, and actually things are going to improve. In fact, just a, sorry, sidetracking a little bit. Um, I can remember many years ago, I was um, in charge of a school over in Pateley Bridge. You may have heard of it, Nidderdale High School. And uh, I was, it was a temporary um, role alongside my main role. <coughs> and um, I got into school one morning and the electrics went completely across the whole school. And I phoned my boss and I just said, look, what are we going to do? What are we going to do? The lights are, we can't teach like this. And he went, are the windows, uh, have you got windows? Is it bright day? Yeah, it is. It's really bright. He said, you're fine then, carry on. Staff will just have to use paper rather than projecting onto a screen. And he said, Nathan, what you've got to remember is the sky is always lightning. Whatever happens, it's always getting lighter. And actually, no matter what's facing you, just keep telling yourself that. 
And he told me, actually, it really is sidetracking, but he told me this story about how he'd been in exactly the same situation as a deputy head once in Bradford. And uh, he'd, they'd, had a, they'd had a power cut, and he'd made the decision, the head had been out for the day, and he'd made the decision to close the school. And he sent all the kids home, and as the last kids left the school, two things happened. One, the head returned and drove back up the driveway, and two, all the electrics came back on. Um, so, so he just said, just remember, it's always getting brighter. Brighter, The skies are always lightning. So that was kind of a lesson for me there. There is always a message of hope there. We've also got this listening ear. And this is a really lovely phrase, actually. If you think about it, he wakens me morning by morning, wakens my ear to listen. This was an ongoing communion with God, wasn't it? It wasn't a one-off quiet time at the start of the day and then ignore him for the rest of the day and forget about it. This was a constant, ongoing communion that gave Jesus, gave the servant the confidence he needed to do what had to be done. And obviously the passage goes on to say what had to be done later on. But without that constant communication with God, would the servant have been able to be as obedient? Would the servant have been able to do the things that God had called him to do? And then we've got this reference to obedience, actually. Again, the sovereign Lord has opened my ears. I have not been rebellious. And it's quite interesting when you look at this phrase, opening his ears, it sounds like it's a repetition, doesn't it, of the previous bit where he says he wakens my ear to listen. It's not. What, this is a, I love this image, actually. I've always loved this image, and I, I didn't make the connection until I saw it in several commentaries. But actually, this is a reference back to Exodus 21, where if a servant decided that he wanted to stay a servant after his period of service was over, what he could do, he or she, they take, the, the master would take them to the door or the doorpost of the house, pierce their ear with an awl, then he will be his servant for life, the master's servant for life. And that's what this is really referring to here. This is the servant being a willing bond slave, like in this circumstance, a willing bond slave to the father, total submission, a lifelong commitment. And out of love, it actually says there, I love my master and my wife and children and don't want to go free. This is out of love for God that Jesus willingly submits himself. It's not a debt or an obligation. You know, we talked about creditors taking away into slavery. It's not that. This is love that is driving this commitment more than anything. And actually, you've got this passage using this very similar phrase in Psalm 40, where he says, it says in there, sacrifice, sacrifice and offering you did not desire, but my ears you have opened. And this, was, this is, I think it was David actually in Psalm 40 saying, sacrifices and offerings are all very well, but actually what you really want is true submission, true allegiance and proper commitment to God. This is very much, that psalm is very much the tone of Isaiah in this passage. And God, and Jesus, the servant, not turning away from the, um, from the punishment that was, or the, 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 the suffering that was actually going to come to him, not being rebellious. And again, there's maybe echoes of Jonah in there and how Jonah did run away from something he really, really didn't want to do. This prophet or this prophetic uh, element, he's not going to run, run away from, he's going to stick to it. And then we have these, these references, actually, to what Jesus goes through many, many hundreds of years down the line when he talks about offering his back to those who beat him. We know that happened. We know Jesus was whipped. It says in Mark 15, verse 15, that he was whipped, that his cheeks and his face 
um, were uh, spat on, that he was mocked, that his beard, in fact, it doesn't actually say his beard was pulled out, but Spurgeon, talking about this passage, says, if it says it in here, even if there's no ref- reference in the Gospels, it's probably highly likely that it did happen. And Luke 22, again, Mark 15, these reference, this mocking and this spitting and the abuse that Jesus suffered as a result of this. And suffering in these times was seen by the people of Judah and the Israelites generally as a sign of guilt. That actually if you're suffering, it means you have been judged and condemned. But Jesus is different. The servant here suffers, but without any accompanying guilt. And that's huge. And actually, we see that probably best in Philippians chapter 2 there. He made himself nothing taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness, being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. So this hopeful servant obeys, he humbles himself, and he steps in when nobody else is willing to answer, when God comes calling and is saying, where are you? I've come for you. And none of the people say that they're ready to respond. The servant steps in and actually takes that or makes that sacrifice on behalf of the people. So this is far more than just an obedient servant. This is a servant, there's, there's, there's hints, there's implications, there's pictures of the salvation that has come to us as a result of Jesus' sacrifice on the cross. And actually, because of that, we can move on to my final point, which is a certain vindication. Jesus could be humble, he could obey, because he was sure of what would happen next. That daily, ongoing communion with God meant he was certain. He had a certain hope. In fact, if we just read this passage, because the sovereign Lord helps me, and that's really key to this, because the sovereign Lord helps me, there's a conviction there of help. I will not be disgraced. Therefore have I set my face like flint. I know I will not be put to shame. He who vindicates me is near. Who then will bring charges against me? Let us face each other. Who is my accuser? Let him confront me. It's the sovereign Lord who helps me. Who will condemn me? They will all wear out like a garment. The moths will eat them up. You see, now we've actually got Jesus being accused. This is the hope that he has. Jesus is being accused, and yet he has this hope that actually, because he knows what's going to happen next, therefore God exalted him to the highest place. He knows that's going to be happen. There must, he wouldn't be praying so much. He wouldn't be uh, in the Garden of Gethsemane praying like he did if there wasn't an element of doubt, however. There's still, he's not totally convinced, but he has to go through this. And in fact, if we look at that passage, we can see that actually now we move from a situation of physical abuse to a courtroom. And Jesus is being put on trial. The servant is being put on trial. We're going from persecution to prosecution but he is full of faith. He's full of faith. The Lord will help me because the servant cannot help himself in this situation. He has to rely on God. And actually, that's what Jesus does here. He relies on his father. The Lord will help me. Complete confidence and dependence. And the Lord will prove him right. 
He is sure of that. For the joy set before him, it says elsewhere, he knew that actually it was going to be worth it. And he sets his face like flint. That's a, a phrase that has gone down now in, many, in, in much literature, hasn't it? It's one that we use quite commonly, to set your face like flint. And that's what Jesus does, despite knowing what awaited. In fact, in Luke 19, sorry, Luke 19, uh, Luke 9, sorry, it says, as the time approached for him to be taken up to heaven, Jesus resolutely set out for Jerusalem. He set his face like flint, knowing what was about to come. He planned this courage in advance. He knew he was going to have to do it. And actually, that truth of Romans 8.31, oh, sorry, apologies, that truth of Romans 8.31, where it says, if God is for us, who can be against us? Jesus refers to, or the servant refers to twice here. If God is for us, who can be against us? He who vindicates me is near. Who can bring charges against me then? It's God who helps me, the sovereign Lord. Who will condemn me? Because actually, God is for me. And actually, the same can apply to us, can't it? We can only have that assurance ourselves because it applied to Jesus first. Because it applied to Jesus in the sense that he had nobody who could actually bring an accusation that would stick. Nothing would stick. It's kind of like he's saying here when he says, who will accuse me? Who will condemn me? Bring it on. I've got nothing to be afraid of. I've got nothing to worry about. Because actually, I am absolutely sure that God's got my back. That nothing will stick. No accusation. And actually, we have this situation where God, who has called the servant earlier on in this passage, because he's been asking for somebody to stand up, now is also the agent of the servant's vindication. There will be nobody who can actually bring anything against him that will actually prove him wrong or prove him to be guilty. Who will bring any charge, it says in Romans 8.33, who will bring any charge against those whom God has chosen? It's God who justifies. Nobody else. The devil throws his worst at Jesus, and actually the result is Jesus' resurrection and life with his father. The enemy, as it says there, has been worn out like a garment. Death has no sting because he can't actually win this battle. It's never going to happen. And in fact, this sermon kind of writes itself because we've had a start, in verse, a beginning in verses 1 to 3. We've had a middle, which is this passage, and now we have an end because we've had God speaking at first, Jesus speaking next, and finally, in verses 10 to 11, we've actually got a neutral observer commenting on this situation. And this, in many ways, is where we start edging towards the end because, and I've used that phrase, drop your torch, put out your fire. Let's have a look at what it says. Who among you fears the Lord and obeys the word of his servant. There's two different views here. Let the one who walks in the dark, who has no light, trust in the name of the Lord and rely on their God. But now all you who light fires and provide yourselves with flaming torches, go, walk in the light of your fires and of the torches you've set ablaze. This is what you shall receive from my hand. You will lie down in torment. So actually there's a challenge to choose here. There are two choices, and it requires action. We can't hear this message about the servant and do nothing. We have this situation at the start where the Israelites, the people of Judah, had no way to save themselves. The servant steps in and intervenes and takes that suffering on himself and the punishment. What happens next? The people need to make a choice. We need to make a choice. You can trust in yourself. Those who light fires 
are those who have their own schemes, again referencing Jenny's sermon a few weeks ago about um, our own idols. We can come up with our own solutions. We can try and save yourselves, like us on that hilltop with the stride pattern to try and make sure we didn't go off the edge of a cliff. We can try that. Very risky. And actually will not save you in the end. And actually they've rejected the light of God's word. And there's a reward in there and it's not a great reward. You will lie down in eternal torment. Or choice two, uh, sorry, choice one, we can trust in him. One thing to note from this passage is there are no call. This was where I was heading when I first wrote this before I listened to all sorts of um, sermons and, and read up on it. I at first thought, yeah, I know how I'm going to end this. We need to model ourselves on Jesus. We need to be learners, listeners, have the right tongue, speaking words to the weary and all the rest of it. I thought that was the really obvious way to go. But no, that isn't actually what this passage says. Because that almost implies that we can actually save ourselves in some way. No, this passage goes the other way. All we need to do, rather than learn, listen, obey, and suffer, although we can emulate those to some degree, is actually for those who fear the Lord to trust in his name and rely on him. So the headings I've chosen, I've tried to parallel some of the story. We are a helpless people, relying on a hopeful servant through whom we have a certain vindication. But actually, fundamentally, to get that certain vindication, what we need to do is precisely what it says there. Trust in the name of the Lord and rely on our God. Sometimes, unfortunately, it's only when in darkness and we can see no other way out that we really do start to call properly on God's help. And he's such a gracious, faithful God that he does it for us, doesn't he? He has a rescue plan, both in big things, salvation, justification, and in small things on a day-to-day -day basis where we're really worried about something or anxious about it. If the band would like to come back up just to finish as they do so, this actually obviously all points to Christ's sacrifice on the cross. His suffering on behalf of the people because we cannot, they could not help themselves. He will answer for them. He will respond when God calls, when they couldn't, when they wouldn't, taking the punishment on himself out of choice. He made that decision. He set his face like flint. He knows that God, his father, will vindicate him, just as we, because he knew that, we can know that too. So how is it when we're faced with night, when all is dark around us, how is it that we find our way? It's very straightforward. The sovereign Lord helps us. Trust in the name of the Lord and rely on your God.